0: There is a common misconception among unbelievers, and even among churchgoers, about what faith is. you probably heard people say that they have great faith. But surely, that can be very deceptive. A vague, undefined notion of having faith, or being spiritual, or believing in a higher power, has no substance. It is merely a state of mind. Or you may have great faith in an unworthy object, for example, a boat that is filled with holes. Will that faith help you when the boat begins to sink? Well, certainly not. It was an unworthy object of your faith. Neither is faith something you hold on to when all else fails or when there is no evidence to stand on, nor is it a leap into the dark. These are objections that atheists often make, and they are false and misleading. Today's broadcast involves an answer to these questions by evangelist Mr. Phil Coulson, who takes up the topic of what faith actually looks like. Would we know if we saw it? What does the Bible have to say about it? You may be surprised.
1: The letter of Paul to the Romans in chapter 4. We'll read at verse 18 of the chapter. It's speaking about Abraham. And of Abraham, it says in Romans 5 and verse 18, Who, against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. And, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And, therefore, I want to show you something uh, with God's help from this passage we've read as to what faith looks like. We hear that faith needs to be exercised. Salvation is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But what does faith actually look like? We hear believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I was saved as a young boy too, but I was brought up in a Christian home. There wasn't a time I didn't believe. I always believed this. Why wouldn't I? My parents taught me it. The Bible said it. I believed it. There was never a time in my young life that I didn't love the Lord Jesus. Of course I did. What child wouldn't? From earliest years, I was sat on the knee of my mother. I didn't see my dad for a couple of years. He was in the Royal Navy, so he was on the high seas. And um, when eventually he did come back from that, I didn't know him. But my mother faithfully read us the scriptures. We heard of how the Lord Jesus was so compassionate and kind and We heard about his ministry, and what child wouldn't love him? Of course you love him, but I wasn't saved. And so there's many children here today, there's young ones here, there's perhaps older ones who can cast their minds back to years when they heard about the things concerning the Lord Jesus. But there is an expression today, isn't there? What's not to like? What is there not to like about the Lord Jesus? Tender, kind, pure, holy, God, manifest in flesh. Of course I loved him. I think probably my first deep impression of the reality of God came when I was maybe about six years old. I was born, brought up in the city of Plymouth on the south coast of England, a Royal Navy port. It had been for hundreds of years. Because it was a Royal Navy port, then there was a lot of ships coming and going, not only Royal Navy, but foreign navies as well. By that time, my dad was back ashore, and he would go to the midweek meeting, and because we had a form of, well, you call it the draft here, we called it conscription or national service, that where young people had to do some time in the military, many of these youngsters would perhaps, if a capital ship had come into Devonport, well, there would maybe be a dozen of these young folk, sailors, Royal Marines, nurses, all in their different uniforms, and they would be there at the midweek meeting, and Dad would bring them back home for supper. And we were used to that. That's how it worked. And on this particular occasion, it was meeting night. We were already in bed, my older brother and myself. Heard all these voices, people approaching the house. I said, I'm I'm going to go down and see who they all are. Well, he he wasn't interested. He wanted to sleep. So, okay, he slept. I went down to see all these folk. But I went down on the pretense, really, of just maybe getting a glass of water. So went into the kitchen. I knew all these folk were in the room, the front room. I went into the kitchen. Here was my mum, and she's down on her knees. And I thought she was just looking for something in a cupboard. And I said, what are you doing, Mum?" And she looked round. She said, well, son, your dad's just come home from the meeting. He's got 14 young folk with him. And she says, I haven't anything in the house to give them. Nothing. So she said, I'm just telling the Lord about it. Now, what do you want? So as she was getting me a glass of water on the back door that came into the kitchen, and so she said, see who that is at the door. And uh, I opened the door, and it was the lady next door. I knew her as Auntie Marge. So she was in a bit of a, a bit of a state. She said, oh, oh son, is your mother there? Yeah, she's just here. Her Mum came to the door and she said, What's the matter, Marge? Oh, she said, I've I've just had a telegram. Now, will take a little time perhaps to explain that to the younger ones. But that's where if you needed a message quickly, it was sent by wire, Morse code or whatever, and a little guy on a motorbike came with a piece of paper in his hand with the thing written out, and he was the telegram boy. And so the telegram boy had been this very important message. Her sister in the city of Exeter, which was just maybe an hour up the line, she'd had to go into hospital. No one to look after the kids. So Auntie Marge said, I have to go up and look after them. Oh, I'm sorry, said Mum. So, um, uh, what do you need, dear? Do you need a lift or something? Do, do you need to be taken to the rail station? She could just get the last train that night. Uh, she said, No, I have a taxi coming. That's OK. Um, the taxi will take me to the train station. She said, The thing is, tomorrow is our Billy's birthday. So she said, I've been the whole day baking. And now his birthday's not going to go ahead. Can you use some cakes? Can you use some scones? And as a little boy, I helped carry in those cakes, those freshly baked scones. And they all came into the kitchen. Auntie Marge went away up to Exeter. And Mum took those trays of cakes and things into the front room. And from that day to this, I doubt any of those people in there knew where those things had come from. And I went back to my bed. And I thought about what I'd seen. Not just that God had answered Mum's prayer in such a wonderful way. But my mind began to work, and I thought, God was working ahead of all this. So, before ever that lady took sick, before that telegram boy came, before that ship came into the harbor, God was using a woman, and he was using her to prepare food for people we didn't know were going to come to the house. And I remember lying in my bed that night, and it dawned upon my soul that the God of whom I'd read so many stories and heard so many things. He was real. This is a real God, and he can do wonderful things. And I suppose that was my first deep impression of a God who knows and understands and can do things. It's the same God we've read about here. And many, many centuries before, thousands of years ago, this man called Abraham, who had been an idolater, he'd worshipped false gods, And one day, the scripture says the God of the glory appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He called him out from the idols that he worshipped. God just simply said, you come out, I'll lead you to where I want you to be. And amongst the many great promises that God made to this man, eventually, was one concerning the birth of a son. Abraham, God said, you and your wife Sarah are going to have a son. But he was nearly 100 years old. His wife, Sarah, was... 90 years old. Same age as my mom is now. I can imagine Abraham going to Sarah. Sarah overheard it anyway, and he said, God says we're going to have a son. Now, the Bible says that being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. We mustn't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that he didn't think about it. He didn't reckon it all. He did. What it's saying here is, is he didn't consider it an obstacle. You see, faith isn't blind. Faith isn't, as people in this world would like to tell you, the refuge of people who are either too weak in intellect or too frightened to face up to reality. Faith isn't fatalism. And Abraham considered all these things. He recognized he was a very old man. His wife, a very old woman. The manner of women when it comes to bearing children was long past for her great thing is, this is what faith looks like now. Having thought the whole thing through, and when all human experience, and all human reasoning, and all human logic hit the buffers, and it made no sense, he believed God. He believed God. And being fully persuaded, lovely verse, verse 21, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to also to perform God has promised it He can do it if God has promised it He will do it and maybe you sit there and you think I've been in meetings like this before How is it that the death of a man some two thousand years ago in a country? That's thousands of miles away How can his death? Affect me today preacher you're asking me to believe that somehow the death of that man really can be the end of all my guilt and my sins before God today. How does all that work? And it can't be reasoned. It isn't logical. But praise God, it's real. And because God has promised it, he's able to perform it. Because it wasn't just the death of any man. It was the death of God's own son. It was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as in the same way, As the first man who ever lived, Adam, because of his position as the head of the human race, the Bible says he committed one outstanding act that had its effect upon every one of us, because we're linked with him by birth. You might not like the idea that you and I are related, but ultimately we are. And if we could trace things back far enough, we would all come to that man, Adam. There's no doubt that what he did in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago, Has had its effect on you and me. Because he estranged us from God. He gave us a sinful nature. You don't need me to convince you of that. And we're all constituted sinners in the sight of God. Because of what Adam did. You say well hang on a minute. I'm following you now preacher. Are you telling me that God blames me for what Adam did? Not at all. No. God doesn't do that. That would be unjust. God doesn't blame you for being a sinner. That's not your fault. That's Adam's fault. But you do desperately need to be delivered from the bondage of sin. It is a huge problem we all have. It's what makes us all common from wherever we are. No, no. What God has against you tonight, God's case against you personally, is not that you're a sinner because of what Adam did. It's because of the sins you have committed. It's your personal guilt. Your personal sins. That's what God holds against you. That's what needs sorting out. You have actually two problems. There's the guilt of your sins, and there's the power of sin as a master in your life. And you need to be delivered from sin's penalty, and you need to be delivered from sin's power, and that can be done. And it's all on the basis of the death of that blessed man. Because that man who died at Calvary, that man who cried, finished, as the hours of darkness passed, that man is God manifest in flesh. He's the Son of God. He came to do what no other man could. He came to give his life as a representative man on behalf of the race of men. He came to provide salvation from sin's penalty and from sin's power. That's how the death of that man can affect you. You would not deny, you cannot deny that what Adam did in the garden six thousand years ago has had its effect upon you. Well, the Bible says in this very letter we've read from on the same basis, Just as the one act of disobedience by Adam rendered us all sinners, that great act of obedience on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he offered himself, the Bible says, through the eternal Spirit without spot to God, he sacrificed himself at the place called Calvary. And on the basis of the work that he did there, your sins can be forgiven. And it's for that reason that your faith needs to be. Not in the cross of Christ. Not in the blood of Christ. Your faith needs to be in Christ. It needs to be in the person. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that must be accompanied, the Bible says, by repentance toward God. It means I take my place as the guilty sinner that I am. My personal guilt. My personal sins. The things I have done that I shouldn't. The things I haven't done that I should. That's what God holds a person responsible for. But in rich mercy, God says, I'll not only forgive your sins, but I will deliver you from the power of sin as a master as well. And this letter wonderfully explains how that in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that sacrifice that satisfied every claim of a holy God, it teaches us how God can remain just and yet be the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. God promises in this wonderful message of the gospel that the person who confesses their sins sincerely before God and who leans their full weight in faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the only savior of sinners, God said, I will forgive your sins. I will deliver you from the power of sin as a master and praise God what he has promised he is able to perform. It doesn't depend at all upon you. Whether you were born in a Christian home and brought up in that way, it's a wonderful blessing. Or whether it is that these things are fairly new to your ears. My dear friends, you don't need religion. You don't need Christianity. You don't need church membership, but you do need Christ. You need Christ as the only Savior of sinners. And faith looks back to that cross. Faith looks back to a man who sacrificed himself so that your guilt could be removed. A man has died for you, and not any man, the Son of God. He has given himself willingly in all the agony and shame and pain of the crucifixion of himself at Calvary. He's gone through all of that and suffered and bled and died for you. And yet, if you will not take your place as a guilty sinner before God and confess your sins and repent of them, and put your faith entirely in the Lord Jesus as the Savior of your soul, all that for you was in vain. Faith lays hold of God's word. Faith lays hold of what God has promised, not for the thing itself, but because of confidence in the one who has said it. This is a God who cannot lie. This is a God who's demonstrated his love for you because he sent his Son in the first place. He's provided the Savior for you. And the very God who has provided that means of salvation is the God who says, if you repent and believe the gospel, he will forgive your sins. He can do so justly. He can do so on the ground of the sacrificial work of his own beloved son. Christ had no sins of his own to die for. He himself bore no guilt in the sight of God. The Bible says he died the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. Boys, girls, older folk, if you, like me, heard all those wonderful Bible stories read, and you've read them yourself, and you've colored the pictures, and you have a picture in your mind of that lovely man, Jesus of Nazareth, well, that's the man who died in all the extremities of Calvary's agony, so that you can be saved, so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can be made right with God, so that the guilt can be removed. The very next verse on, from what we were reading in Romans 4, says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. These things aren't just for Abraham. We read they're for us as well. And the wonderful thing is that just as Abraham, as he considered the deadness of his own body, the deadness of the womb of his wife, and then trusted entirely that God was able to perform whatever he'd promised, the man's believing in resurrection. He's saying, well, regardless of the deadness of our natural bodies, in order for God to perform what he said he would, then it will need an act of resurrection. And if God can raise the dead, he can do anything else. And the wonderful thing is he's raised his beloved son out from among the dead. See, if I were preaching to you tonight a dead savior, he would be no savior at all. But he said of the Lord Jesus, he was delivered up on account of our offenses. That means Christ died so that your sins can be forgiven. But he said he was raised again on account of our justification. In other words, the resurrection out from among the dead of the Lord Jesus was God's endorsement that everything Christ had gone to Calvary to do had been done. His cry, finished, has been endorsed by God, and God has raised him from the dead. God has said, I accept and I agree that everything he went to Calvary to do has been gloriously done. God now has that righteous platform on which he can forgive every sinner that would come unto him. Why are you not saved tonight? Why have you not yet bowed the knee and acknowledged before God I'm the sinner for whom Christ died? It was on August the 15th in 1963 that I trusted Christ. On the basis of a verse in a chapter that I'd recently quoted, i just quoted the whole chapter in a Sunday school event a week or two before. but That night as I heard Isaiah 53 verse 5 preached on again, he was wounded for my transgressions. That lovely man, of whom I had been taught so much, suddenly became very personal. I looked around that night. I looked at men and women who I knew and trusted, friends of the family. I thought, that dear man over there, Who's just been reading the scriptures? He's a lovely man, but Christ is a thousand times lovelier. I imagine what it would be like if that man had volunteered to die in my place, I suddenly realized that this man who was a thousand times and more better than that man, he was the one who had died for me. Christ had died for me. Christ had borne that pain for me, and it was all it was all with a view to me being delivered from the judgment of God, having my sins forgiven. Why are you not saved tonight? Oh, that tonight you would just get a fresh glimpse of Christ crucified and realize that faith isn't mysterious. Faith isn't a jump in the dark. Faith is simply taking God at his word. And God says, this is the Savior I've provided for you. There isn't another. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the meeting place for our sins. And so God says, now I have provided a savior. It's the only one that there is. He's given his life to satisfy my claims of justice and to meet you in all your need. God says, what I require from you is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear young person, dear older person in this room tonight, you can be saved right where you are because the man God raised has gone back to the glory and he lives in the power of an endless life and he's ready and able to save to the uttermost all who would come unto God by him. He's a wonderful savior. We commend him to you and
0: trust that God will bless his word. True saving faith is always based on Evidence, and it is trusting that what God says, He means. It is placing your weight upon the living Word of God. It is believing what God says, and it is based soundly on the worthiness and reliability of its object. Can you trust the Bible and the sure Word of God? You most certainly can. Its authority and reliability has been proven beyond question. Can you trust Christ alone to save you? You most definitely can. Who is a more worthy object for your faith? The one who loves you and gave his life to pay for your sins and to win you for himself? You can safely leave your soul's salvation with him. Don't look at your faith or the greatness of it. Focus on the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and the very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message and would like to know more about the truth of the gospel or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the gospel hall nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.